Haven't cried in a lot of movies, but I remember well those that have maybe shed a tear. And I actually have my, my sister and her family are visiting this week, and she's right up here. So Heather, you remember this first one, no doubt. When I was eight years old, Air Bud came out. And there's a scene, it's the first time I remember crying in a movie, in which the boy had to leave him and disembark on a boat. And I, I remember leaving the room because I didn't want my siblings or stepdad to make fun of me. Um, as a young boy, uh, no, never mind, it got me. Every time, moving on, moving on. I got a little flustered for a moment. You weren't here last service, so that was new. Every time I watched the movie, Rudy, in the final scene, as he runs on the field, right? That victorious moment, it gets me. And then finally, the closing scene of Braveheart. After William Wallace had been captured and was, they were trying to torture him into recanting, he musters the strength for one final barbaric yelp in a very Mel Gibson kind of way. And with everything that he is, he yells a word at the top of his lungs, and that word is? Freedom. 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 Now, freedom is a value baked into the fabric of this country. In 1776, this Declaration of Independence was signed claiming the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A little more than a century later, France gifted us the Statue of Liberty, which stands to this day, though, with plenty of restoration along the way. Our country has just always valued freedom. And today on Memorial, Memorial Day weekend, we, we value and tomorrow we celebrate those who've given their life for a kind of freedom that you and me get to enjoy. But if you take the time, you'll observe, especially in our nation, that our relationship with freedom is kind of complicated. Sometimes it's romanticized, oftentimes even abused. After all, in our nation, for many, freedom means I get to do whatever I want. Even if it hurts me, even if it destroys me. Freedom for many means I do not submit to any authority, including God. Anthony Kennedy, Supreme Court Justice, wrote in Planned Parenthood v. Casey 31 years ago, he wrote this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Man, that's a lot, isn't it? As you, as you look at what's up there, in my mind, those aren't rights that belong to us. Those belong to God. And so today, Paul, in his letter to Galatia, he talks about freedom. And one of the questions that's gonna hang out there for us to wrestle with is what kind of freedom does God have for us? Now you can rip this text completely out of context and you can make it about political freedom. You can make it about civic freedom. That's not what he's talking about. And I'm not saying those things aren't good. But as we look at what Paul has to say, the question is, how is the freedom he's talking about different from what the world has to say about freedom? How should we use this freedom? How should we not abuse this freedom? That's where we're going today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we ask and invite you to challenge us, Lord, with what it means to be free in Christ. 
Help us, Lord, not to abuse this freedom. Lord, help us to grab onto this freedom, to live in light of this freedom and live by the law of love that ultimately drives this freedom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse one, Galatians five, verse one. Paul says, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and submit, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. First thing we're gonna talk through, and I'm stealing this, Gary mentioned this last week, and very simple, be what you are. I'm gonna flesh this out for us. But I'm gonna lend some credit, Pastor Bob McCoy, because a few weeks back, I was developing this, I was reading the text, and I had this, this phrase, become what you are. And then Gary said, well, Bob used to say, be what you are. And I'm like, all right, it fits, I'm stealing it. So here we are, as we read this text. Look at verse one. Paul gives an indicative, and he follows it with an imperative. For freedom, Christ set us free. That's the reality. Therefore, stand firm and don't go back to slavery. Paul wants them to live in light of their reality. You're free in Christ, so live like it. You've been freed from the law, so act like it. And in this imperative, he says, stand firm. Your translation might say, stand fast. The Greek lexicon BDAC gives this gloss of being firmly committed in conviction or belief. And the reason this particular verb is used here is you get this imagery of planting your feet and being ready for whatever it is that comes your way. Whatever that wants to get you off balance. Whatever that's looking to distract you from the mission at hand. Whatever it is that's going to mess with your position. Stand firm, stand fast. And for the people of Galatia, there were people who had come in, Jews, Coming in, teachers saying, you got to be like us before you get Jesus. You got to get circumcised before you can get Jesus. You got to deal with our calendar. You got to eat special like us before you get Jesus. And if you do all those things, then you can have Jesus. You can be a Christian, but first, you got to be Jewish. Now, we have to be careful. This isn't our main issue. But today, as we go through the text, my hope is to get actually really practical. Some of these topics might even be controversial. Get very practical. But first, we got to be careful because like the Judaizers, Christians, especially as we get comfortable, all right, our hearts become lawmaking machines. Now, you... We're going to point this out because some people will abuse freedom. And we're going to get to that at the very end, our last few verses. But we have to acknowledge that this is very, very true for many of us, especially been in the church for quite some time. And we got to stand firm and make sure that the same thing doesn't happen in our own hearts and in our own homes as was happening in Galatia. Because we see it everywhere, to be honest. We have a habit of taking areas of Christian freedom. All right? Things that aren't necessarily sin that require discernment. Because we're, not longer under the, we're no longer under the law of Moses. We're under the law of love, the law of Christ. Love God with all, you, all that you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And many of us don't like this. Because you just want someone saying, this is good, this is bad. And instead you find yourself in circumstances in which the answer is, when you say, what do I do? The answer is, well, it depends. We don't like that. Guided by love. And so... What do we find ourselves doing? We find ourselves in areas of Christian freedom in which people might do different things, turning our convictions into laws. 
and then confusing the laws that we make for ourselves with the life we get in Christ because our hearts are lawmaking machines. Again, we take our own personal convictions and then we judge others for not keeping the new laws that we've made. Now, many of these personal convictions are great. And I'll give you an example. We do it to protect ourselves. One of my kids, uh, I forget how long ago this was, in the last few years, Trina will definitely remember this, was walking along the wall out there in the parking lot and ended up eating it and felt a giant gash in his forehead. And for me, after dealing with that whole scenario, it was just easy to make a rule. You're not allowed to walk on the wall anymore. Done. But then you could imagine... I'm out with my children, and whether it's here or somewhere else, you could imagine how easy it would be to look over and to see another parent with children and to see those children on a wall, maybe even unsupervised. For me to think to myself, wow, they really must not love their kids. (laughs) How easy it is for a conviction for pride to take a conviction and to turn it into legalism. How easy and how fast that happens. And if we aren't careful, spiritual pride creeps in. I'm gonna give you two examples. These are major examples in the church. This is what I meant by controversy. So hopefully it's not. But we're gonna talk about alcohol. We're gonna talk about school for kids. We're gonna talk about two massive areas of Christian freedom. And what I mean by this is that the Bible doesn't offer strict prescriptions, but people are guided by love and discerning with the Holy Spirit as they carry these decisions out. And yet, nonetheless, there's a lot of judgment and a lot of legalism in both of these categories. We could list a dozen others, but here's two. In the mid-20th century, the Southern Baptist Convention, I come from an SBC background, so my Baptist friends, like, I love you, okay? I've heard people say, you know, a non-denominational church is like a Baptist church with a cool website, right? So, but just follow me. This is the Southern Baptist Convention. This is what they declared officially as a convention. Quote, I'm reading, we hereby give renewed expression to our intense hatred of alcoholic drinks in all forms, at all times, in all places. And we urge upon our people, this is all Southern Baptists who call themselves Christians, we urge upon our people the duty and obligation of total abstinence on their part. The United Methodist Church did the same. Church of the Nazarene did the same. Assemblies of God did the same. At some point in their history, putting out very similar statements. Why? They're putting up fences around decisions that could lead to very poor decisions. Now, there are people who stop drinking alcohol for really good reasons. Me and my wife, we don't keep alcohol in our home. I don't really enjoy the taste all that much. It makes me feel achy. But at the same time, I've gone to a restaurant and watched someone come to Jesus in a conversation with me and surrender their life to the Lord over a beer. The Bible's very clear that Christians aren't to get drunk. And yet Jesus, his very first miracle was turning water into wine. Not grape juice. Some of you might hear people make that argument. It's a terrible one. It is not a biblical one. It was definitely wine. 
And God affirms throughout the Old Testament. He frames alcohol in actually a very positive way. Not drunkenness. Not drunkenness. But what do we do with this? What do we do? Out of a personal conviction, someone might say, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. I'm going to abstain from this. But then what happens when you have a strong personal conviction is pride works its way in and that conviction turns to law such that we end up judging in our spiritual arrogance the people around us. Paul says, for freedom you've been set free, stand firm. This is why I'm pointing this out in this point. Stand firm because things are going to invade your heart and your mind that try to replace freedom with law. I'm not talking about freedom to sin. I'm talking about areas of Christian freedom. The second one is schooling. And man, this comes up so much. And perhaps it's the stage of life that I'm in. But I hear conversations about this all the time. Whether or not your kid goes to public school or home school or private school. I've seen high-profile Christians come out as to why Christians either have to send their kids to public school as mission or shouldn't send them to, to, to public school. Now listen, I homeschool my kids. There's pastors here who don't. All of us share the priority of discipling our kids. And those are decisions we make prayerfully every year. As a parent, your child's discipleship is at the top of the totem pole. Them knowing God's word is way more important than them learning math. I'm not saying math isn't important. But it's more important than playing a sport or learning an instrument. And the intentionality with which a parent disciples their kids, teaches them to pray, teaches them to serve, teaches them the story of God's uh, will, that's going to vary household to household as they prayerfully consider how to steward what God has given them to steward. But I have to be careful not to write my own personal convictions that the Holy Spirit has led me into a law that that I then subject everyone else to. Again, my heart is a law-writing machine. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm in that freedom. Now, this doesn't mean freedom is a license to sin. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But we are to stand firm. That freedom that we have should be motivated and driven by love, as we'll see, not the desire to build up laws. Be who you are. Remind each other of who you are. Remind yourselves of who you are. Remind your kids of who they are. Free in Christ, not a slave to the law. Purchased, redeemed. The Galatians needed this reminder. And Paul, he's going to spend the next 14 verses explaining to them the condition of this freedom, that they are free from something and that they're free to something. And first we see that they're free from bondage. Talked about this a lot over the last several weeks. And so we're gonna gonna push through verses two through 12 with some comments along the way. Starting in verse two, Paul writes, take note, I am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Now you could rip that out of context and be like, well, dang, no one should be circumcised ever. It's not what he's saying. He's saying when you introduce circumcision as a means of getting Jesus, Verse three, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that if you were to introduce part of the law, if you're just gonna bring in a tiny part of it, 
circumcision or food laws or we, we got to celebrate this holiday. If you're going to bring in part of it, then you're welcoming in all of it. And if all of it comes, that means you have to be perfect. And if you have to be perfect, you will fail and you don't get Jesus. It says you've fallen from grace. Verse five, for we eagerly await through the spirit by faith, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. There is a difference between works righteousness and faith righteousness. There is a difference from someone whose posture in life, whose posture towards God, whose posture towards their neighbor, whose decisions are guided in this life by, by whether or not they're seeking to be righteous before God by the, based on what they can do or whether or not they see themselves as righteous before God based on what Jesus did. There's a difference. And John Piper, he captures this difference beautifully. He writes, works wants the thrill of feeling itself overcome an obstacle. Faith wants the thrill of feeling God overcome an obstacle. Works longs for the joy of being glorified as capable and strong as smart. Don't so many of us want that? Faith longs for the joy of seeing God glorified for his capability and his strength and his wisdom. In its religious form, works accepts the challenge of morality, conquers its obstacles through great exertion and offers the victory to God for his gratitude and applause and recompense. Faith also accepts the challenge of morality, but only as an occasion to become the instrument of God's power. And when the victory is achieved, faith rejoices that all the glory and thanks belong to God. What a difference. What a difference. And if you're going to embrace the righteousness of Jesus based on faith, it means surrendering works righteousness. It means acknowledge you're free from the burden of the law. That does not earn you your merit with God. Continuing, verse 7, Paul writes, You were running well who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth. This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. He's talking about those Judaizers, a little leaven. Leaven's the whole batch of dough. It's an interesting word picture. A little leaven, the whole dough. That bad teaching, that false teaching can start small and spread so quickly. And it can span, not, not just in, in taking over kind of the, the way that we experience or, or interpret scripture, the way that we experience Christian community, but then also move quickly through Christian community. Bought a house three years ago and, you know, we have lots of weeds in our yard. And a lot of the weeds are just kind of the singular. You go and you pull it up and it's done. But then there's the viney weeds. And you often can't see the vines. And you go up and you pull, and it could be very small. And with it, you know what I'm talking about. And oftentimes it grows, it grows, and grows. But because of, of the way that it's growing, the way that it's moving, what pops up can seem small, but there's far more to it. We have to take these kinds of things seriously. Paul is taking false teaching very seriously because how quickly a little bit of leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. 
Paul continues, I, I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view. Paul is confident that they're gonna come back to the truth, but whoever it is that is confusing, you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, last verse, verse 11. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Apparently people had accused Paul of saying circumcision was okay. And he's like, no, no, I'm being persecuted because I'm saying it's not okay. In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I'm sorry, one more verse. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. He's talking about castration, which isn't a thing we just kind of toss around willy-nilly. But Paul feels so strongly about not letting anything overshadow the cross, not letting anything overshadow the beauty and the power and the victory of what Jesus did when he came in the flesh, lived the perfect life, died the death we deserved. So that if you trust in him, you can actually have go before God, the judge, with his righteousness. Nothing should overshadow that. So much so that he says, these people coming in that are trying to overshadow the cross, I would rather them be castrated than you be circumcised. That's strong language. Paul doesn't want anything to overshadow the beauty, the power, the victory of the cross. And so we gotta realize this freedom that we're free from the bondage of the law. But looking forward, we're going to see that we're not just free from, but free to. Galatians 5, 13, he says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. Finally, we see we are, we are free to love. And I'm gonna add in parentheses there, not to sin. As we've gone through this series and as we've talked about over and over again, the fact that we are not saved by the law, my works, my righteousness isn't what earns me favor with God. I don't get to stand in the right in judgment before God based on anything I bring to the table. But as we've talked about that, some people have gotten a little uncomfortable and they've come talk with us and just this reality that, but aren't we still called to obedience? Aren't Christians' lives supposed to look different? And if so, what makes them look different? Like, what is the guiding principle here? If, we, if we're not under the law, what is it that we're under? And the answer is love. Imagine with me for a moment that you're in prison. And after a number of years in prison, your family, your spouse, and your children have come and they visited you faithfully eagerly awaiting the day in which you get to be fully reunited and restored. And I just want you to imagine with me that you get a notice that says you get to get out early, but you don't let your family know to come pick you up. In fact, you had some money on you when you were booked and so they gave that back to you on your way out and you decide to get a taxi and to head over to a bar. And as you Get drunk, you decide to hire a prostitute. You go over to a motel. And if someone were to confront you and say, why are you being stupid? And your response was, 
My family loves me no matter what. That's not freedom. And that's not love. Paul says very clearly, don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And Christians wrestle with this question of, well, if God's grace has me, does that mean I get to do dot, dot, dot? And the better question is, if God's grace has you, why would you want to do dot, dot, dot? That's the difference between being under the law of Moses, be, law of Moses and being under the law of love. Because we're now in a place, sin, sin is affection in the wrong direction. And when God captures your heart, affection is in the right direction. And that is God. And the law of love is to love God with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourselves. And we get a list in chapter 5, verse 19 of what it looks like to embrace the flesh, to use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He, he defines the works of the flesh. And Gary peeked into my week last week, so I'm peeking into his now. We're going we're gonna to read through these. But you're not going to see love anywhere in here, which is why this is always sin, what we're about to read. This is never loving God. This is never loving neighbor. Verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions. I just want to point out, I didn't say this last service. Some of you read those first three, sexual immorality, promiscuity, and you're like, oh man, that's clearly bad. Okay? And then you get down to outbursts of anger, and you just glossed over that real fast. When that's you, verse 21, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is it as we journey through this life and as the Holy Spirit sanctifies our hearts, as we mess up but we turn back to God, what is it that leads us to not doing these things or to repent of doing these things? It's not because we're under the law of Moses. It's not because this behavior earns our, our standing, our status before God, but because we're now governed by the law of love, the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is driven by love. Galatians 6.2, peeking even further ahead, carry one another's burdens, and in this way you, you fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9 says, to those who are without the law, like one without the law, though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. Again, what is that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And all of these things listed in the text, they are either a betrayal of God or a betrayal of our neighbor. They just aren't love, which is why they're sin. But this law of love in our life, remember earlier when I said you find yourself in a situation where you're trying to make a decision and you just want someone to tell you what, what the right choice is. And often the, the, for you, the answer is, well, it depends. Because we 
pray as Christians in areas of freedom in which we ask God to lead us to align our heart with his heart, to align our mind with his mind so that we can love well. And under the law of love, that is the defining characteristic. And it bleeds into all our decision making. A love for God and a love for neighbor bleeds into our purchases and the way we think of our homes. That's a big purchase when you buy a home. And so as you, as you wrestle with that, and I know there's people in this room who are probably wrestling with that now, as you think about the house you're gonna buy, that's a major theological decision. Permeated with what does it look like to, that this home would be an act of loving God with all that I am, that this home would be a way for me to love my neighbor as myself, as opposed to creating some vain kingdom of self-glorification for myself, of comfort and luxury and lavishness. It bleeds into the, way, the ways we think about purchasing things, the way that we budget out our lives and how we act in our workplaces, the way that we speak to our neighbors. This law of love, it's a defining characteristic for a Christian. And we want the check boxes, but what we're given is love God and love your neighbor. Sometimes we don't like it because that's kind of harder, isn't it? I want to close this morning by talking about three practical examples of freedom being driven by love. What does it look like for freedom to be driven by love? Talk about community. I'm going to talk about mission. I'm going to talk about discipleship. Quickly. First, freedom in the community of believers of Jesus Loving people well will mean using your freedom to lay down your rights in order to love a brother or sister. That's what that will look like. And I'm gonna come back to an example I mentioned earlier with alcohol because I know a number of people here who've come from homes where there was abuse of alcohol, people who've, who've gotten sober out of their own alcohol, uh, substance abuse, whatever it might be. And if I'm gonna get together with someone like that or invite them into my home, Man, that's an easy decision. It doesn't need to be around. Because Romans 14, it would cause them to stumble. So yes, might I be able to drink alcohol and that not be a sin? Absolutely. But why would I use my freedom in order to get someone else to struggle? Freedom is driven by love. And we do that as we serve people in our community. The second thing is, is mission. There's certain things that we don't do or that we probably shouldn't do that might create a stumbling block for the people we're trying to reach with the gospel. And an example, when we were in Mexico, I was very surprised, and in particular where we were, that they told us not to play cards in public. That there's very, very conservative, and any card playing where we were was associated with gambling. And so we were told, we loved playing cards. We had a bunch of games that we played. And we were told, you can't bring those into the colonias. You have to leave them back at the base. Because if people were to see you playing with the cards, that would be a stumbling block, even for people who aren't Christians. Like, no, 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 don't go near those people. Easy. We won't play cards. That's fine. But think about it in your workplaces. Think about there might be someone you don't, you, that you know who isn't a Christian and maybe there's an area of freedom that you have a strong disagreement with them on. Maybe it's political. 
maybe you guys have very different beliefs on tax policy. I would call that an area of freedom. You're not gonna find that in scripture. Actually, you will. Jesus has given to Caesar what Caesar's. Guess what? If there's an area of freedom and this person isn't a believer and I wanna build a relationship with them, I'm not going to die on a hill arguing for something that ultimately doesn't matter all that much in order to sever a relationship with someone who needs Jesus. I'm not gonna do that because other things matter far more. And so what does freedom driven by love look like? Well, in missions and evangelism, it means giving up things that are areas of freedom to not create stumbling blocks for others. Finally, the way we disciple our kids. Many of our kids grow up in a church in which they constantly hear you shouldn't or you can't. But we need to be as disciple makers for those who work with kids. We need to be as parents, the kinds of people who replace the you shouldn'ts or that add to the you shouldn'ts because you get to. That everything we say no to is because we get to say yes to something better. We have to remember that our kids, just like us, are little law-making machines. My experience, especially firstborns, And our faith is so easily replaced with a moralistic, therapeutic deism. A Christianity that's all about just doing the right thing and feeling good about yourself. And you you open these kids' Bibles sometimes and it's just all about doing the right thing. Don't get me wrong. I want my kids to do the right thing. But I need them to know that the right thing isn't what gets them Jesus. And that's the message so many of our kids internalize because they don't hear the opposite often enough that I have to live a life of merit because it's my merit that gets me God's love. And they hear all the do's and the don'ts. And that's the message they internalize. That's the message that takes root. But what gets me Jesus isn't my merit. It's not what I can do. My freedom from the law means that all sufficient merit, which is the name of the song we're about to sing, one of my favorite songs at the moment, that the all sufficient merit that earns me right standing with a holy and perfect God comes from Jesus and only Jesus. And anything I do is driven by the love I have for God, not an attempt to earn the love of God. And we can't miss this. We can't let our kids miss this. If your kid can do algebra, but they don't understand justification, that's an issue. We ought to fix it. We can't let our disciples miss this. We are free by the love of Jesus for the love of Jesus. That freedom is driven by the love of Jesus. And so today we're gonna close with this song. Again, one of my favorites. And we're gonna sing about the merit we have, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us. I'm gonna invite you to stand and sing with us.